What's your experience been like as a student at CU Boulder? So the last two years I've been a full-time student at CU Boulder. I've learned a lot of things about the education experience and also the culture that surrounds CU Boulder. And I, I don't want to be too broad and say this, is a, this that what I have to say here applies to all schools in at least America, but I think it's a good depiction of things that you might also see elsewhere here. And for the most part, I'd say, just kind of to hone things in on one area first, in terms of education, I would say I was, I, I think there were some things that were lacking, and I also think that some things were exceptional. So it kind of evens out to this gray area where I think if I were to rate it out of 10 or something, I'd give it maybe like a 7, like a Overall, I'm, I can move on and take things from it. Like, I, I definitely learned something, at least from the classroom. And something we have to note there, too, right off the bat, is that people often get this confused. We're talking about a university in a university system, uh, and you attended one college in that university, being the yes. College of Engineering. Uh, so, the College of Engineering, uh, I, I wonder... What experience did you have, because I had less time in the engineering school, uh, insofar as your ability to build relationships or to talk about uh, interesting conversations? Because people often say you go to college to uh, be faced with diverse perspectives. Do you think that happened? Were you ever challenged? Did you ever have political conversations or was it really not part of the college experience as it's often you know told to be yeah so in the school of engineering or the college of engineering more precisely there are really only two i guess classes and honestly two two professors that that allowed me to tackle new facets of things in ways that uh, i previously wouldn't have without being in or attending their classes and and I will say that these aren't the core STEM classes either required for my degree. This isn't the calculus class. Now, I never really looked at calculus or mathematics uh, in some sort of creative way where it could be like mind-changing or rule-changing uh, revelations or perspectives on things. But more so, it lied in the, in the classes that covered uh, other aspects of engineering. So looking at morality, looking at the complexity of engineering through the lens of you could look at society or leadership. Those, that, that was really what was more fascinating to me and where you see these new perspectives. In all honesty, math class was the same it was since seventh grade, since fifth grade. You know, you go over lecture in class, maybe you do a couple examples and then you go home, read the book and do homework. Nothing changed. And so in that department, I think it's severely lacking that there's there's nothing that, in my experience, has tried to be anything more than it already has been. But in terms of anything outside of the core STEM classes, yeah, I've experienced really interesting um, perspectives on the world. There's often this perception by notably conservative individuals, but by people across the board, 
that liberal arts schools in particular seem to be, as the name suggests, liberal. They seem to, uh, from one extreme, indoctrinate people in certain with certain values. Uh, but it's fair to say that the correlation in progressivism and being a professor, for example, is pretty high. Uh, but I, I'm sure it's different across schools within the university, and I can attest to that firsthand. The business school is obviously going to be more, at least fiscally conservative, whereas the arts and sciences classes, actually there is bias. And this idea, and it's really unfortunate because I've, this is something I've been defending myself on many occasions, so I have to, I have to correct my own statements here. There was always uh, a view that I espouse that no, it isn't biased. If you are conservative, no one's going to call you out in class. You're not going to be stigmatized. But in some liberal arts classes, that's actually not true. There is a stigma. There is a groupthink mentality. The majority of people, the vast majority, are going to disagree with you. There is some kind of, even if it's subtle, ostracizing that does happen. Um, but that's in certain you know, arts and sciences classes, right? Political science, let's say, a fairly progressive major. But I wonder, from your experience, where does engineering lie on that spectrum? Is it more of the cut-and-dry analytical type, as you might expect, uh, more conservative? Is it more liberal, as engineering tends to be at the forefront of education and, and women's empowerment and things like that? Where does this lie, and where have your conversations veered? Yeah, so I think I would say that my experience in the School of Engineering tends to be slightly on the the leftist center, I would say, in terms of if I were to make like a composite of all the experiences, I would say I'd end up left of center. But I think it's it's safer to say that it's it's more there's definitely more uh kind of want to tiptoe around saying something incorrect here, but I would say that for the majority of the experiences, I would classify politically the people that I've interacted with as kind of centrist. It seems to be that they balance kind of these ideas more on both sides of the aisle, um, or spectrum rather. And I would like to believe that from what I witnessed, they put a little more thought into their beliefs. Now, that being said, there are experiences I've had where people um, believe things without a lot of information to justify it. And I've met my fair share of people who claim things um, without, you know, you know, they kind of believe them in a very, very proactive and maybe proactive is not the word, but they stand by their beliefs almost blindly. And that isn't an insult to them, but it's it's just trying to describe how um, how confident they are in their beliefs. And one of the things that was surprising about being in engineering is kind of the neutral stance that it took towards a lot of these things that at least the students brought forward um, to kind of sway it to one side or the other. And in most cases, it was more to the left, more liberal ideologies, um, politically speaking. And at least the two best experiences I had that kind of 
solidified my opinion on where the School of Engineering uh, stood were in the so-called more liberal classes for engineers. They were more artsy leadership and, you know, information technology. I mean, you wouldn't really call information technology artsy, but it's definitely the less more or the less mathematical and um, and the way it was taught, because that's a class we, you and I both took. Right, um, right. I, that was also just taught by a really fascinating professor. Exactly, right? And so, in terms of my other classes, there was also another surprising experience where we had a whole day devoted to learning what privilege was. And I don't believe this was actually an engineering class in particular. This was an astrophysics course. So... I would think similar vein to engineering with, you know, the intensity in mathematics and the course material being very, you know, set in stone and cut and dry. But um, we ended up having a whole Friday lecture dedicated to learning what privilege was Mm -hmm. that, to be quite frank, I didn't sign up for. I didn't sign up for astrophysics to learn about what privilege was. So that was, at least to that extent, for me, regardless of what I thought of it politically, that was frustrating. But that was probably the biggest surprise. And that kind of skewed my entire perception of it more to the left. It makes me wonder to what extent there should be, as you mentioned, these these days or these classes or these um, heavily, maybe not forceful, but heavily implied events that you should attend and so forth that teach you about things surrounding modern ethics or social norms or uh, progressivism, whatever. And I don't just mean this in a left, quote-unquote, left tinge, although that's more likely. But I mean this across the board. I wonder what role universities play in teaching us these values. Because at first you think, something, you know, to use your own words, why well, didn't sign up for that? And admittedly, signing up means a lot more in university because you pay for it explicitly. Now you pay for public education through tax money, mm-hmm. but it's a different sensation of payment. But even at K through 12, uh, you are taught and instilled with what some people may call, quote unquote, American values. You know, you're taught... Mm. Um, the Pledge of Allegiance and uh, whatever else. In Oklahoma, you know, we sang Oklahoma state songs. I know not every state does that. <laughs> not every state has a very good state song. But but these facets of, you know, loving the president, for example. I don't know if it's being taught less or just the echo chambers of younger and younger kids having social media is really hurting it. Because I've seen uh, some interesting data on this about how if you asked elementary school kids who... Uh, their favorite person was in the world, some huge majority would say either their parents, of course, or the president. And they'd all know the president's name and they'd all love the president. They didn't have to care about politics, right? But those numbers have since been changing. And I want to know your thoughts. Do you think there is any value in, well, let's just call it liberal arts education? Because in some sense, these leadership classes, let's say you're interested in, they don't come with an engineering degree. They come with the liberal arts facet of that education. So can you have your cake you know, and eat it too? Yeah, so I feel like the whole premise behind teaching kids this stuff at, a, at an early age is to create some sort of lasting 
feeling of unity or cohesion in a society. And you always have to be careful not to take it too far. But I, I think I think people are also trying to achieve that through on the left. I mean, it's through an entirely different lens. And I think it's gotten out of hand in some cases, just as it has on the right. But I think ultimately people are trying to find comfort and unity through these ideologies and through, you know, acceptance and tolerance or, um, you know, I guess it's trying to find commonality by using privilege as a means to kind of equalize, I guess, in the specific case that I used with my class. And I do think it has a precedence in education because I think through building some sort of common, at least goal, maybe not goal, but a common perception on what's right or wrong and a way forward that people usually come out with more uh, efficacy when they enter the workforce or maybe more, um, I guess, more goal-driven uh, individuals who have this common, this common goal. However, I think it's kind of had the opposite effect, to be honest, because although I think the best intentions were probably a hard... I like giving people the benefit of the doubt, and I like to think that the best intentions were in mind with these ideas being thrown around. But ultimately, I think they end up being more divisive nowadays, um, and that's merely because, like you said, you have these catalysts that are social media where people can be um, kind of shrouded in their own perception of what's right and wrong. And in a world where that's kind of in the gray area, I feel like the, the problem becomes a lot more, a lot harder to tackle than it used to be. Um, and I'm not going to say I know what it was like, you know, a couple hundred years ago, but I imagine it's a lot easier to at least sell an ideology when that's all you know, and it's probably all you will face until you're like 23 years old or, or you know, in an older age where you're kind of, your mind is kind of set. It's no longer malleable versus today where even at 10 years old, you can be exposed to everything um, from any ideology all at once. So what about the idea that the university, whether you agree with their exact approach or not, is trying to be that equalizing force? It's... It's mediating in some sense. Yeah. That, yeah, well, theoretically, and I know this is just theoretically, uh, but generally speaking, you have people from all walks of life coming to pursue higher education, as the name implies. There's also a lot more layers to that from you go to, going to college because there's social pressure or because fraternities sound cool and you want to party. We can get into that. But generally speaking, in theory, you go to school to get an education from any background. You can do that. And it's fair to say that in this world, as I said, as you said, young individuals are stuck in these echo chambers. They're stuck in this world of telling you what you already know and what you already want to know and what you want to keep knowing. And you only know it because your parents told it to you or because you, your friends told it to you, whatever. And now you're stuck in that. It's possible that the universities play a mediating role in that. They take all these different people stuck in their echo chambers and they unite them by teaching them an ideology in some sense. Now, I don't think that's the right word. Right. I don't think it's quite that strong. But if there is any underlying framework to, let's say, a certain department on campus, you know, the political science department seems to have a, 
underlying, you know, biases in some way. Uh, just like how the business school is going to have more obvious biases. Is there anything wrong with that? That's an excellent question because I'm seeing two different ways to look at this. So we can either see it as an equalizer where, you know, universities are trying to bring everyone to the kind of same standard or way of thinking. But you could also see it as an equalizer in the sense that it's supposed to bring everyone's ideas together and butt heads with all of them and provide discourse on all sorts of different ways of viewing life to find the equalizer. And to be honest, you know, just thinking about it and having said it, I think the second way should be how universities should be bringing people's, you know, morals and ethics to mind is butting heads with them so that way we can find some sort of underlying commonalities. Whereas, I guess in the former way I mentioned it's already claiming there is a commonality, that we found the answer, that there is a right and wrong, which is kind of how I think Boulder has been treating a lot of its, uh, uh, a lot of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The politicality, is that a word? I don't think it is, but... <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, it, kind of the political aura of Boulder, I feel like it, it has its moral set in stone. And at least in what I've seen, it doesn't allow for too much variance in that without, you know, at least the student culture um, denying you in some way. Well, that's the, that's an interesting point. Is it administration mm. who isn't allowing that? Mm -hmm. Is it student government who people at, at CU seem to forget this? Uh, CU Boulder in particular has one of the, if not the most autonomous student governments in the U.S., and, well, at least up to the point where they amended their chancellor agreement. We can get into that. Um, and one of the highest funded at around $24 million uh, fiscal year 2020, I believe. Um, so is it the student government? Is it the student body? Is it the social media pages? You know, Barstool Buffs and um, Speak Your Truth on Instagram are going to have two very different perspectives on college life, Right. I don't know if Speak Your Truth is the name of an Instagram, but I assume it is. Um, and I think they're all going to disagree here. The culture is not going to agree with administration in a lot of cases. Yeah. So administration, I think, is probably detached the most from student culture. And I feel like CUSG, the student government, and all of the representatives for the student body are kind of that connecting link or at least they try to be i'm not sure how the intricacies work at at boulder in particular uh on a level that i'm comfortable to talk about but uh you can definitely i can definitely see that at least the student body and the student government are definitely more influential on each other than administration in terms of political belief and i say that because just the few times that i looked at you know um the things that candidates were putting out or the things that elected officials were putting out, you see a lot of pretext for how important race is, right? Which is, you know, to my understanding, a more liberal um, idea that race kind of defines, uh, I guess, uh, how do I put this? It's identity politics. Exactly. exactly and we've talked right? about that. Yeah. And so I can definitely see how that's affected students and how students have affected uh, 
CUSG in that way, just by looking at their promotional material and kind of the the qualities that they're trying to push as important. But in terms of administration, I feel like they're on a totally different uh, note. And it's the student body that kind of has to push them in the other direction um, when when things arise. And in some sense, they're a scapegoat. Like our chancellor, um, Philip Stefano. Uh, I'm not particularly close with him, but I'm also not particularly um, opposed to him. I'm, I'm relatively neutral insofar as the person is concerned. Mm-hmm. But I could mention, and I probably will mention, a number of reasons uh, that I think his administration has failed in, in, in many cases. But I'm not going to say that without acknowledging that he tends to be a scapegoat for everything. It's, you know, oh, a... Um, a student uh, got shot, you know, near campus or something like that, and and there's always going to be, you know, racial implications and things like that if if the person was a minority and, and if the police were involved and all of those things. And we can get into those intricacies, but I don't have the stories in front of me to do that. But then it's how did the chancellor let this happen, right? And I find that really unfortunate because then you devalue the actual accountability of administration. I think there's actual accountability to be had insofar as how we responded to COVID, for example. Mm. And initially, that accountability was actually great. They were kick-ass. We started off super strong. We were one of the earliest schools in the nation to send students home, even before spring break. Uh, so that's just one example. But in cases where it's, you know, uh, one student, some, something happens to a student off campus and now it's all Phil's fault. And now when we go to our uh, CSU-CU football game, we're all going to boo him when he gets on the scoreboard and they talk about him. And I mean the whole stadium booed the guy. Um, if it would have been Mark Kennedy, who is now uh, resigned or removed, I don't know specifics, mm-hmm. uh, it would have been even worse, right? So just to put a nail in this point, I think we can't always blame administration but students don't like being held accountable either yeah and you can definitely see that with another example being the march 6th riot that happened uh over on the hill by uh cu campus or boulder campus and and in that point you know i I don't think there was a much that administration did to hold students accountable in that instance, too. And so, you know, I feel like I feel like it's, it's a really big mess where you want to be careful not to come off as this, like, all-powerful, you know, authoritarian regime where you're telling students what to do. At the same time, you know, I, I guess right now I'm empathizing with administration because they're also taking the brunt from students who right. can't hold themselves accountable. And, and then even unrelated uh, mishaps off campus. Uh... And so, I mean, on a very basic level from the outside looking at the problem, I mean, I, I would think it's maybe a communication problem between administration and, and the CU student body. But, yeah, it's it's I, I definitely can't be entirely mad at CU administration. Uh, I think they may have handled some things poorly. In fact, my biggest gripe with them is how they handled the riot and, and passed the beginning part more towards the middle and end of COVID, I think has been a total 
mess, a clown fiesta. It's been entirely whack. And I agree, but we might have different reasonings in that. Okay, so that yeah. would be interesting. Um, well, let's get into that. COVID nineteen. Before uh, it was called COVID, I mean, let's really roll the tape back here. Mm-hmm. Early January, it might have been. I mean, it really early here. Um, I was researching, and I think very similar time you were also researching uh, this new virus that was being seen in China. And we had pulled up on our phones, or maybe it was on the, the small TV I brought. I don't remember what we were looking at. Uh, but you could see YouTube videos of people just collapsing in China. And then, since we were on the newest option, I mean, this advanced technology, you pressed show newest first. I know it's amazing. <laughs> and you'd see the YouTube videos get taken down live. You'd see them be removed. Yeah. Taken from the air. And then you see all these, uh, you know ostensibly, uh, or or in actuality, doctors from China saying this is a terrible problem. Um, and it, it hit us really early that this was a real issue. And I remember uh, writing on our whiteboard um, how many cases there were in the world, how many in the U.S., Colorado, all the way down to our county, and of course CU. It was mostly zeros at that point in time because it wasn't really, you know, it wasn't in the U.S. yet um, until, you know, that cruise ship got everyone's attention. But right. Uh, that aside, so we're coming on to spring break, which I, what is that early March here on campus? Mm-hmm. I don't actually remember. And I remember making a bet with a student in our, um, community council, which is just a leadership uh, council. Think of it as a hall council on campus. And, and we made a bet whether or not we were going to come back to campus after spring break. I bet that we wouldn't. She bet that we would. Turns out we were both somewhat wrong, because by that Thursday before spring break, we had to be off campus. They gave us a few days lead up, and they said, you gotta go. I was impressed, let me tell you. There were not many schools doing that at the time, from my understanding, if my memory's right. We were absolutely on top of it. There weren't any cases in Boulder, officially. It's possible there were, given it was, you know, asymptomatic. And I just want to say I was impressed. Do you share my sensation at the start of this pandemic only, let's just start there, that this was a really awesome response from the school and they were really communicative and it seemed like they were just rocking the world? Yeah, I I totally, because the one thing you want to prevent from happening is the complacency that the student you talked to was having. That's how you stop a, a horrible outbreak from happening proactive nature or having a proactive nature in, in regards to an event like this is everything you need and then you need to hold that proactiveness in the future going forward but yes their initial response was so surprising and exactly what needed to happen uh to prevent anything from happening on on boulder campus and it was it was crazy because the the first few weeks that we were following this thing it felt like you know, I don't know if anyone's seen the movie Contagion, but it felt like I was living through that scenario. It was kind of crazy. Uh, of course, it wasn't. Uh, COVID's not nearly as fatal as the disease that was in Contagion was, thankfully. But um, it probably seemed like we were maniacs in our dorm. Guaranteed. <laughs> our dorm thought we were lunatics because, well, and maybe this was my fault. Uh, I don't remember if we both decided on this or if it was just me doing this, but. 
we would have updates every day on the whiteboard. It was how many cases now? You know, what's the projection look like? What's the new official CDC stance on how many days this virus is or asymptomatic? Um, what is the official World Health Organization declaring it as? Because it wasn't a pandemic. I mean, we were here way before it was called a pandemic, and they were really late to call it that. Yeah. Another controversy we have forgotten about, by the way. But it started as, you know, a local virus and then an epidemic. And then they had all these. And then it was extremely dangerous, but they wouldn't call it uh, epidemic or whatever. Yeah. yeah whatever. It uh, was a weird game. Um, and it was just called um, NCOV 2019 because it was the novel coronavirus from, you know, late 2019. Um, but there are people always coming by. Or, like, whenever we eat lunch somewhere and bring it up, there's like, you guys talking about that again? And I felt like a total buffoon, but just you and I looking at it, it seems so blatantly obvious to me. This has nothing to do with CU at this point, but I just want to vent a little bit here. <laughs> yeah. What is taking a temperature check at every airport on the West Coast going to do to prevent the spread of a virus that, in the majority of cases, doesn't have symptoms? And we knew it was asymptomatic anywhere from two days to 14 days. I mean, a month in, we knew that. So February, we knew oh, it had right. some level, right? Yeah. Th this is just me venting at this point because I am amazed at how everyone thought we were idiots. I just want to put that out yeah, there. Yeah, and, and here's the other thing. I feel like that was the gateway into people thinking it was just another like uh, f seasonal flu. Mm -hmm. Oh, you just get a temperature check. If you got a fever, you know, just stay home. But it was much more complex than that. And yeah, you you were definitely spearheading the um, the whiteboard, but I was I was definitely I was definitely I guess no pun intended on board with that because I I like keeping track of the numbers and 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 keeping track of the whole thing in general because it felt surreal to me. I was like, wow, this if people are talking about it and it's this small, that means there's something crazy about the virus. Yeah, I remember going yeah. back on my uh, search history on Amazon just a few days ago actually, and I was like. When did we buy those masks? <laughs> I was just curious because there wasn't supply chain issues. There, we had toilet paper in the stores, uh -huh. and it was some, you know, it was early oh. spring or late winter, whenever it was. Yeah. And by that point, we were doing the, um, the fun, you know, mind experiments, uh, the mind games of, uh, what if this is deadly? Like, what if uh -huh. it's more deadly than we know? What if China's being really sus? Which, which they were, yeah. but it didn't end up being you know, smallpox, right? Right. Uh, but we played all these out in our head, like, what would happen? You know what I mean? And it was almost fun. Yeah. Uh, there was this weird sense of ironic comedy almost, because yes, it's fun to think about apocalypses and things like that, but also because no one else took it seriously. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. as you said, surreal. I felt like a total outsider, and... I mean, I guess I could go on Twitter and say I told you so, but that doesn't do any good because I didn't. We did, neither of us predicted the future. We just Googled some crap and said, yeah. "Wow, this is interesting." And, and here's a crazy thing: you know, I I will not forget how many people would joke about, "Oh, you got the I forgot what they would call it. They didn't call it COVID at the time, right?" But uh, people would make fun of it and mock it, and then having got the darn thing like a month ago. Or maybe I forgot how long ago it was. Right before I was about to be fully vaccinated, too. Ironically enough, uh, I can tell you, <laughs> seeing people treat it as a joke is a shame because that thing knocked me out. It kicked my, kicked my butt. 
I know I cuss in here sometimes, but you know, I, I'll stray away from that when I can, when I can, can help it. But <laughs> yeah, I was out for like three weeks after that. I mean, most of the time I spent in isolation uh, at my parents' place was not sunshine and rainbows at all. Uh, I probably got some other sickness on top of that too. I mean, no offense to you know Boulder. Uh, college students but you know to be honest god knows what they're carrying around on them the amount of times we got sick on campus now to be fair (laughs) i know i wasn't sleeping enough and i know i was like making noise and you probably weren't sleeping enough so that hurts your immune system for sure yeah but the amount of sickness i am not down with that sickness oh no (laughs) no because i remember you got sick got me sick and then I got you sick again with illness. something else. Yeah. It was, no, it was uh uh-uh. uh horrendous. So so back to CU's response. Though. Yeah. Now that the high horse has been popped <laughs> off. Um so CU phenomenal. Started off really good. Yeah. Surprised everybody, surprised our hall director. I remember talking to her about this and she was like, No, there's no chance we're leaving before spring break. I mean, just absolutely surprised everybody. And wonderful. I'm all about it. So then we have Something like through the summer following, through summer of 2020, regular emails, follow-ups. Some of them weren't even related to CU. Some were just like, hey, this is how the virus is evolving. You know, we didn't really have vaccines or at least accessible vaccines of any kind for many, many months after that. So it was just really cool. Our health department or whatever it's called on campus was really being effective. And then at some point it fiddled away, maybe fall of that year. And then they just gave us updates about the online schooling system. So now here's another inflection point. Um, How was online education for you with CU? Yeah, so online education for me was actually, in some way, it it was a godsend. Because I used to spend, and I did the calculation, I think like around an hour, maybe even two hours of walking a day on campus, which is great for my health but not great for time management when you have homework, especially if you want to delve in-depth as much as I did into homework while still having free time. Uh, So having those extra uh, time slots to prepare for a class or eat or relax or unwind or whatever was great. However, I don't think you would get the same answer from, like, 75% of students. 99.9. Yeah. yeah. And most students definitely did not like online. And it's because, I I think it's because, honestly, they they get distracted very easily with online schooling. And I started noticing this uh, maybe a few months into it. When in my math classes, I would try to do a group project with a breakout room, and ninety percent of the time they're either sleeping, ignoring me, or uh, something in between that. And so, I loved the idea of online schooling, but it was very hard to self motivate. At least for me personally, I know some people don't have a problem with that, which I respect. But it was a pain in the butt to deal with all those people. <laughs> yeah, I agree on everything you said. I was one of the select few that I've talked to who really enjoyed online because, to your point, it's so much more efficient time-wise. So much more efficient. 
not just because of the time saved walking, although that's the biggest part. There's also flexibility because a lot of yes. things are asynchronous. Watch this video when you get a chance. Well, if you have some plans or a big test on Friday, you can watch that asynchronous video for the next week on a Saturday. You don't have to go to class that Friday, right? There's so much flexibility. And in some sense, uh, and I've argued this in the past, I think this is the future of education for a vast number of individuals because it's so much more cost effective. It's just the cost of bandwidth, really. And your, your class sizes can be so much larger. Uh, but there are major downsides that you pointed out. For example, group projects, breakout rooms, as they're called. Absolutely terrible. Not because the breakout rooms are bad per se. I have had one class where all the students were interested. It was a very uh, very unique class on a, a niche subject. So you know those students in there were doing it just because they enjoyed it. So that was fun having those conversations. But at an intro science course or something like that, you're just going to be faced with a bunch of turned off cameras. You're going to say, hey, guys. And you're going to sit yeah, there yeah. <laughs> and then you're going to turn off your camera because now you're embarrassed that no one answered you. And you know they're behind the screen listening to you, just not talking. It's horrendous. Yeah. So yeah. we don't have to get into how we can fix the education problem here. But online education was not perfect. Yes. I still prefer it. I also acknowledge that there's huge cheating scandals to a degree I've never even fathomed. I mean, dozens and dozens of kids in one test getting honor coded. I mean, absolutely amazing. Oh, yeah. But if it can be done right, I think it's pretty awesome. I think it's the way forward, yeah. I think, I mean, because honestly, during a lecture... I'm sleepy because someone's just talking. I'm supposed to be processing all that information while the only stimuli happening for my brain is just looking at a mouth moving and hearing words. The same thing happens in a classroom. The only difference is now I'm in some a seat someone sat in 30 minutes before me and it's a little warm and maybe the air conditioning doesn't work and maybe there's a guy coughing in the background. So, I mean, for me, the online environment is honestly just more pleasant and it's somewhat easier to focus, but... I agree. Yeah. But no so, one else agrees with us. Yeah, <laughs> I know, which... Uh, to each their own, I guess. And But as, as a whole, I think the online experience, like you said, definitely can have some improvements here and there. But. Definitely, and it makes sense during a pandemic. We haven't exactly. had one in a long time. Uh, we haven't had a wartime president in a long time. I mean, these are just... Yeah. It's cyclical. We've just lost touch with certain facets of reality that happen. And we need to be regrounded in that. And being separated and trying to uh, fully realize this actualizing, spreading, mutating virus. Well, that's important that we stay, you know, stay isolated. So then uh, fast forward to, let's say, March of this year. We mm. are at a point where, from my understanding, almost everything is online still uh, from this last spring semester. All of my stuff was online, but I think most other students had majority online as well. And there's still a lot of people around campus, though. You know, people live in their apartment complexes. They live on fraternities. And, and throughout these many, many months, there have been plenty of issues of students just ignoring protocols, right? Yep. The most prominent example in the U.S. would be people partying in Florida, and, and all of them were appropriately made fun of online mm -hmm. but 
we had a huge incident here at CU, and I've made my own, on my personal YouTube channel, response to this, because it wasn't just a failure on the students, but it was a failure on every every single person who could have been involved in this in any way, failed in every way. Every Let's start students. Yes, let's have 800 kids on the hill during a pandemic. That's a good start. And then let's flip someone's car because we can. Wonderful execution there. Students screwed up. Okay, let's go administration. Okay, we are going to temporarily suspend 40 students. And then they're going to get full access to their tuition and everything back. And they'll be normal students again in a couple weeks. Then we're going to permanently suspend for a whole semester two students. But we're not going to take any legal action against them. I'm pretty sure in any other instance, if you flip someone's car and all of it was on film because everybody filmed it, you would have some legal repercussions, yeah. right? You're an adult. You have to deal with this. So administration seems to have failed. I've reached out to them on many occasions. I would love to sit down and chat in case I'm misunderstanding anything. Police failure. How do you have a darty? Because see you, I mean, they darty. They're a party school. They start, let's say noon. Noon mm -hmm. on Thursdays they start. Um, I don't remember what day of the week this was, but you're partying all day, progressively larger and larger uh, numbers of students. By the time this person's car was flipped, was it, I mean, it was dark. What was it, 9 it was p.m.? Like 9. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the official response, if I remember correctly, was we didn't have enough time to prepare adequately to this. Mm, I think you did. <laughs> I mean, yeah. again, totally. maybe I'm missing something huge that actually uh, says, no, the students did have the right because COVID didn't exist for a second or the administration didn't realize what was going on or the police actually were super understaffed that day and no one was answering their phones. I mean, maybe there's something going on, but it seemed to me that every possible person who could have screwed that up, screwed it up in the worst possible way. Yeah. In the midst of a pandemic. Right. <laughs> Where am I wrong here? I need you to push back on me so I don't feel like a lunatic. Yeah, so... <sighs> at least at least in regards to the students, I can't call you wrong anywhere because the, they completely violated public health guidelines, health and safety guidelines entirely. You know, I mean, I think at that point, we were still having our restrictions on how many... You know the amount of people that can be in an area at once. I like, think it was five related people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Relate, yeah. yeah, and that had a thing to do with it too, whether or not you related to them, and that completely blew that out of the water. And I mean, I could go into the whole thing about party culture, but that I feel like that's that's for another time. <laughs> but that alone is enough for me to not even come up with any saving grace for them. I mean, the the only defense I've heard from the people who were okay with it was that stopping something like that is a suppression of the freedoms that supposedly were supposed to be giving people. But I don't, I don't think anywhere in the Bill of Rights or anywhere in the United States we have something that says you have the right to party or something. Maybe that you could argue pursuit of happiness, but that's not even something that's written on paper. And that's also about property. Exactly. If you look at so the original writing so double whammy and so yeah sorry but i can't defend the students the police yeah i mean 
I remember. I I can't even feel like I t- I can defend them too. <laughs> I don't know how. I mean, they they did eventually bring a SWAT vehicle because they had one yeah. in Boulder County, and the students, real bright, threw bricks at it. They like shattered the front glass. I don't know if you saw that picture. Oh, yep, yep. Which, and they, there was also a fire department. They came, should have been prosecuted they, for that too, right? And they threw yeah. rocks at the firefighters. And the poor UPS guy, he just couldn't get out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the students are clearly have some fault here. So, something's wrong with them that night. I don't know. Too much, too much pre gaming. I don't. But I don't what know. is one SWAT vehicle going to do? Especially because you don't want to be dangerous. You don't. Maybe you don't want to tear gas. That looks mm-hmm. bad. You know, bad publicity. I get it. But they couldn't have rolled up like eight hours earlier, right? But here's the other thing too. This was in the height of, you know, the I guess. The political tension still... This was around George Floyd, right? Were people still upset about mm. that? Was this the height of that? You could correct me real quick if I was wrong. But I think there was so much hesitance on law enforcement because I think there was real pressure. Uh, well, so th- George Floyd... So that was 2020. That was so 2020, that would have been the prior the year. Prior year. But yeah. even to this day, to your point... There still is a lingering pressure there. Exactly. And CU is certainly, as a culture, absolutely partaking in that pressure. Now, Mm -hmm. it's a little bit interesting because I don't know that the uh, fraternities are particularly liberal. So maybe that that doesn't quite fit the (laughs) bill there. I'm not sure. So, yeah, not only was I almost a year off on um, the catalyst for all of this new... um, I guess racial political movement, but but that could scare the police though. Even if, right. if it doesn't affect the students, maybe that's true, but it certainly still has an impact on the police force. And Boulder County Police, or at least CUPD, they pride themselves on being progressive. They uh-huh. are uh, very th- their gender diversity is one of the best I've seen. I mean, they really do pride themselves on that. So I mean, that's maybe one hypothesis for why the police were so. You know, they, they were kind of honestly laid back with the whole situation. But even then, that doesn't excuse it in my eyes. And it's because, mostly white students. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's the frat bros, you know, drinking 12 things of beer and puking everywhere and throwing things at people. So 12 I things of beer, wow. 12 thing, I know, I sound like a crazy party goer, don't I? <laughs> I even said party goer. I don't think people say that either. But, yeah, uh I would like to knock some semblance of sanity or like reassurance that you're that there's some sanity in you, but uh, I guess I'm going to be an echo chamber in this regard, unfortunately. Let me just ask you this then. Okay. Is there anything exculpatory about that day? Is anyone, to be specific how I ask this, can anyone say some of the blame is not on me? Can anyone brush off blame and say, really? This isn't about me. Can anybody do that? Oh, oh, that's a great question. So, it's, this is hard. We could go down like a whole, a whole uh, list of people that we could potentially call, call like the, the root of the problem. Um, you know, for me, I, I actually think that less blame goes on admin and police and more on the students. Okay. Uh. You know, I don't know the age range of the students, quite frankly. Uh, Probably college. Right. Age. So, like, you know, high not, school kids like to sneak into college parties, but uh, I'm sure I don't they're think that's the majority kids. of them. Yeah. yeah. So my guess is like 18 to 26, kind of that range, that age range. 
So I, I feel like at that point. So I guess this actually leads us to another group of people that I'll get to in a second as I as I'm thinking about it. But I wonder what compelled them to put so many people's lives at risk so nonchalantly under the the I guess excitement of partying. And you know, may I'd like to blame the students because I feel like it's just common sense to think first about the safety of others rather than the spur of the moment excitement. You know, I can understand that sometimes in life that kind of thing gets the better of you, but we're talking, you know, a crazy event, a practical riot here. So uh I would think I would think that most of my blame goes onto the students because each and every one of them had to individually think, well, is this is this going to be safe? Is this right for the people around me? And all of them probably didn't ask those questions. On my uh, response video I made, and I'm talking about this like it was some huge deal. It was not. It got maybe a thousand views. You know, nothing major. Mm-hmm. And uh, but anyways, uh, in this video. I actually didn't blame, at the core, any of these three groups I just mentioned. I didn't blame police as the core issue. I didn't blame students. I didn't blame administration. Interesting. I blamed parents. My claim, and uh, feel free to push back on this, but my initial claim when I first made that response video, what is it, eight months ago now, was that the reason this happens at the core is because students feel entitled to, on one perspective, entitled to some kind of freedom that they may or may not be imagining, uh, entitled to disobey orders because you think your parents will get you out of it, entitled to do what you want because you aren't worried about your tuition, you're not paying for it, right? So some form of entitlement based on how the students were raised. That was my claim. And so can you blame parents for their kid flipping the car. Well, no, if your kid flipped a car, they have to take some responsibility for their actions. If police were too slow to respond, if administration didn't uh, hold them accountable, everyone has some level of blame here. But I think the core issue was actually parenting, however unrelated that might sound. Hmm. So I'm going to see if I can guess as to why. But... I'm going to think that these students wouldn't have the, I guess, this kind of toxic culture created around their age group if they didn't have this, you know, these traits of, like, entitlement, which parents can certainly iron out of their kids through, I mean, I don't know if there's any, like, you know, foolproof way of doing that, but of course, uh, that's something that you can certainly be raised without having. I've met plenty of people who... Uh, through their youth have grown up to be people that never really have that sense of entitlement but i can i can certainly see why you would think that and to some point i kind of agree because you know i only looking at those three it's it's so hard to kind of pinpoint it on on one particular group out of those three but i think of it as enabling that's how i view it yeah like whenever you enable an alcoholic friend and by giving them alcohol, you know, something, of course, you would never want to do, mm-hmm. but you could, right? Uh, it's enabling students 
to feel entitled by saying, let's say after this riot happened, and I really wonder this, and if anyone listening happens to have been at that riot and you're pissed off with me and you disagree, I want to hear your thoughts. Because I wonder, did anyone get punished from their parents? And I don't just mean a beating, right? I mean in a more real sense. Like, did you not get your car payments covered? Your parents said, look, you're going to have to cover your own car payments. Or uh, are you not going to have any subsidy from your parents to support you financially to pay for your fraternity, right? I wonder how much of that actually happened because I think the default position is not neutrality in a case like this. The default position as a parent should be, this is unacceptable. I'm going to revoke something I have granted to you, right? That mm-hmm. to me is the, is the appropriate response. And anything that deviates from that is actually the enabling response. And I wonder to what extent the enabling occurred. And my intuition tells me almost every case. Yeah. And, and another interesting to think about, were there any casualties from this event? I don't think there were. No, right? no. Right. And I think that's usually the, the, the line that people draw, but I don't see why that has to be the line for people to see that something was not good. I'd rather it much be that we stop doing crazy things before anyone has, has lost a life. Uh, yeah, Astro World is a great example. I was about of that. to think about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, I was thinking about that. I wasn't about. I couldn't. See, I can't see the future. of My thoughts. But so, where is CU now in regard to COVID? They, uh, they've mandated. Uh, mandates really not the right word here. They have requested mm. that all students get vaccinated, or else they're not allowed to enroll in the spring semester. That was their official statement coming into this fall. But there were some exemptions. You could have a religious exemption or you could have a personal exemption. Now, whether or not you agree with me that a personal exemption doesn't strike me as all that real of a thing, whether or not you agree with me, is it not fair to say that that's not actually picking a side? You're not actually mandating vaccines and you're not actually saying, I disagree with the government, I'm not going to mandate vaccines. You're just sort of half-assing it and saying, I'd prefer you to do it because I'm making you, but if you don't do it, I'm not going to actually make you as long as you just say, oh, I, you know, personally, I don't agree with it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Does that yeah. strike me as, does that strike you as I don't know. That's weird? an interesting response. Because <laughs> there's no conviction in that. Again, even if you yeah. disagree with me on which side of the aisle you should be on, there is no conviction in that. And I also feel like that's how you get really questionable loopholes, too, of people who have very debatably unnecessary personal reasons for not having... Well, and they're not even loopholes. And uh, you're right. It, because it, personal means loopholes anymore. anything. Yeah, they're not even loopholes because there's nothing to loop around. There's no... Yeah, I mean, there's it's, it's letting people through in the first place. Yeah. Um, and to explain how loose this personal exemption is, let me just say what has recently happened. So the CDC uh, or whoever it was in the federal government said um, that they're going to have companies over 100 individuals have to mandate a vaccine or weekly tests of, of employees. When that was announced, CU made their vaccine mandate stricter. Right? This is their stricter mm. version. They got rid of the personal exemption. 
and then added an amendment to clarify that a religious exemption is anything done for religious reasons or personal reasons that is done with such vigor as to be similar to a religious belief. So our stricter anti-vaccine position, right, our stricter exemption, is, in my eyes, something synonymous with an arbitrary personal exemption. Yeah. So, to go in reverse order, now, roll back a few months, this is how loose our mandate was, in scare quotes. And again, you don't have to agree with me that that should have had a mandate, Mm -hmm. but there's got to be something inauthentic about that. That doesn't really do anything. I mean, what are you... What are you solving by this? Yeah, and, and, and to be honest, with COVID, Boulder has a history of half-assing their commitment to a decision past the initial phase. I remember there is an era of schooling where there would be a couple of weeks in person, and then we would be told we're going back online, go back online, and then we would go back in person for a week. I forgot about that. Yeah, and I was like, are you kidding me? What are we doing? That are was we... horrible. That was the worst. Because imagine you're trying to pay rent somewhere like Boulder, where it's extremely expensive. Yeah. And if you had just said, oh, we're going to be online, you could say, great, let me sublease or mm-hmm. whatever, or just take the f- take the fine and get out of my lease. No, no, no. We're going to only tell you that two weeks in advance, and then we're going to change our minds, and then we're going to change our minds again. <laughs> <laughs> the gotcha, the double gotcha. You're right. That was one of the most irritating experiences. And I I, for whatever reason, I totally forgot that happened. Well, when yeah. was that? What semester was that happening? Was that fall of 2020, spring? I think that was fall of 2020. Because spring, I feel like they just dedicated to, all right, classes are going to tell you if they're in person or not. And that's how they're going to stick with it. But yeah, I think it was fall of 2020. It was just... Which is hilarious to think now because we're now almost into 2022. And to think fall of 2020 was quote-unquote, perceived as the end of the pandemic, strikes us all as, right. you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but no pun intended. <laughs> uh, but it does seem strange, thinking back to it. Mm-hmm. But, yes, oh. it, it's definitely half-assed. But their, their response with, like, this personal exemptions and stuff, and the fact that they're even allowing such a clause in their, their new mandate. Uh, so... I mean, even if you ask me personally, I would even argue something about the religious exemptions because at that point you're trying to debate, you're trying to refute something that's, yeah, I'm not going to get into it. I was going to say. Yeah, I'm not going to get into it. That's an argument you and I have had a little bit on this podcast and off the air. That's one I often have. Religion, not being able to talk soberly about religion really screws over a lot of policy in America, which is just unfortunate. But. Because it's something that is in our Constitution, and I am a big fan of our Constitution. I'm, mm-hmm. a, I'm a big believer in it. Uh, I, yeah, I, I understand where you're coming from there. Mm-hmm. But I also empathize with the fact that, well, these are liberties that we have had bestowed upon us. Right. You can't take them away. Right. So it's, I'm not going to step in that minefield. But, yes, I, I do think the whole, two, the last two-thirds approach boulder has adopted to handling covid has been at best subpar and that handling was purely administration it wasn't Mm -hmm. student government says this or the culture thinks you should get a vaccine Eh, not really whereas something 
like for example, and we don't have to get into the specifics here, but something like support for BLM is very much a cultural thing here at CU. Mm -hmm. It's not that the administration uh, has come out and said, this is how you need to act. Sure, they'll send an email on the listserv every few months, but nothing really in the same way they responded to COVID. And something I find really interesting is what we hinted at earlier, this role that the student culture has and student leadership has. And being someone who's been involved in student leadership Uh, you and I both have, Mm -hmm. I wonder your thoughts, just to pivot here, how important is student leadership at university? And at CU, have you ever felt like it was a facade? And I I don't mean that to be derogatory, Mm. but insofar as, you know, you being a senator for our community council, a really, a really great community, in fact, we had a great council, uh, we spent an entire year unpaid doing presumably lots of things. Did any of these things go into fruition? And did you feel like you were actually contributing in a way beyond simply uh, perception? All right. So I think, I think student leadership can be extremely good and very vital to the operations of a school. However, in order for that to happen, I think the system needs to be the system that's in place that brings these representatives into power needs to be intelligently enough designed that these representatives can do their job efficiently. And I think I think there was kind of a lack of that in CU, and this isn't to blame, uh, you know, Hall Council for whatever wasn't done. I think it's much more complex than that. Right. But I think this is part of why as I'm about to get into, 90% of the things that we wanted to get done haven't been done or aren't even getting started. And so it wasn't until maybe the last few moments of being in Hall Council that I learned just how complex the issues that we were trying to solve were, like finding another third party to contract our drying and washer machines with. To explain that process, because you and I, not only did we just have different roles in our council, but at the uh, conglomerate level where you mm-hmm. have the Senate meeting and, and all of that, we have our own committees. And you and I are in different committees. So mm-hmm. in your committee experience, what did that process actually look like insofar as spending a semester, presumably, ostensibly, getting new washers and dryers? What did that look like? So it starts with defining the problem and at least as a senator, for me, it was trying to just ask around the hall that I lived in. Like, hey, if you guys have any issues with life here, tell me them whether they're the biggest ones that can try and help you, you know, solve those. And ultimately, it was taking that from what I've heard and presenting it to the, uh, I forgot exactly the name of my, uh, my section, but it was presenting that. And with all the other reps from the other halls, the other senators, they would also present what was put forth. And a common thing we found was washers. And we and we learned this quite a while in because it wasn't quite a while in uh, that we actually had an approach to defining a problem. So once we had it defined, we obviously had to figure out how to change that. And 
we learned that it was through a specific third-party company that we outsource, you know, our washers and dryers, like the, how they're solved um, or fixed. Sorry, not how they're solved. How they're fixed, we attributed that to an entire, entirely different party from CU Maintenance or whatever, if there's a, a team for that. So we thought it was as simple as, all right, let's find... Uh, a company that's willing to put more work in and actually fix them when they break because they don't get fixed. And it was going down this whole rabbit hole then after that because obviously it's not that simple of figuring out, oh, so we have a contract with this company that lasts X amount of time with this much money involved. So what would we need to do to then get admin to break the contract or look to forming another one or even doing it themselves. And at that point, it's a problem that expands beyond the scope of a single year of office or semester of office and requires pretty extensive knowledge on, on legislation and what administration has written down for contracts for that particular problem. And so nothing ended up happening because none of us, I mean, I'm not going to say that if we were paid, we would do any better. I'd imagine we, I would hope we would, but I think the problem was much deeper than anyone had expected. They're expecting to walk in and, you know, as kind of these uh, free workers, get some nice things done for their people. But you learn that the problems are much more complex than that. And so I think the motivation to put in the extra hours of, talking to admin and pressuring them for change never happened. I could promise you it never happened because if I didn't do it and no one else talked about doing it, then none of us did it. And what students talk to administration? It's not community council reps. It's student government. And this is something that I, I really struggle with. Um, and I'll even take personally some level of blame about this because I was at the time in the exec branch for student government. And I was just looking through some of our um, documents, like founding documents and, and, and so forth, legislation, and found that there was supposed to be, as it was in our legislation, uh, it might have even been in one of our foundational, uh, formational documents, we were supposed to have a two-way rep from CUSG, student government, to community council. And I brought this up to my chief of staff. And we might have had, what, one meeting where a rep came? I don't remember who it was. Um, seeing as I would know them, I don't want to call them out personally. But whoever it was, they came once and nothing really happened. But these are students who are paid. I mean, they're employees. You know, the, the tri-executives, the three, uh, three-part presidents, they're tier three or tier four student-salaried um, employees in, in some sense. And as a result, they have direct connections to administration. Hell, some of the quote-unquote administration, they pay them. I mean, the student government at CU, uh, the exec branch, ledge branch, and, and appellate court, they actually control, in some sense, with student funds, our cost centers, we call them. The, the rec center, right? The... Student Legal Services, SLS, all of this is under student government, so they have direct access. I mean, I could have logged into my Outlook account and emailed the Chancellor's office. It would have been very simple. Um, 
Now, I wasn't a try executive. I wasn't a director of anything. So that would have meant less coming from me. But it could have been done had we had that two-way connection. And that's something that we didn't have. And I don't blame anybody except myself because, I, you know, being having a hand in both places, that really should have been my responsibility, I suppose. But it just failed. So now you have students like yourself with probably the best ideas of any student on campus about fixing washers because this is the group, the committee designed to do it. And you have no way to actually do it. Yeah. Kind of a pain in the ass. That's certainly what it felt like because we talked, oh, yeah, I remember his name. I'm not going to say it, but I remember the guy who's kind of like our liaison between, mm-hmm. uh, he's the closest thing we had in that in that sense, to knowing how things are done. And we've talked to him, uh, but. Student affairs liaison, I assume. Of yeah. Of some kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But. You know, when we learned just how complex and how many contracts we'd have to look through and all the things we'd have to print, we just didn't know where to start. And so that whole term I served as senator for our hall was spent defining the problem, and that was about it. And maybe that's a start, but I had no way of really knowing if that was already defined or not. I heard it was mentioned before in previous years that people wanted to... to, uh, to find new people to fix the washers and dryers because man those things never got fixed and we had a good haul <laughs> yeah and it was a problem for us i can't imagine the older halls who were just it just sounded horrible from yeah the stories we heard every week you'd go down to do your laundry and you'd pull them out of the dryer and they're still soaking wet and you you pay money for it too so it's crazy yeah uh it's and it was tough too because even if you all had set a precedent like okay we actually have tangible evidence of step one being taken to fix this problem and for all we know whenever the contract ends administration is just going to do what they want anyways but in some sense this could have had a change Mm -hmm. if maybe step two was the next set of senators well covid came yeah towards the end of the year right so there was no there's no pass down here i had something similar happen i remember in high school um uh, just a similar scenario where a couple buddies and I just, uh, you know, we just founded a, an honor society, something like that. And, you know, it was fun. You have to make your, your file system, your structure and document everything, get all the paperwork and make sure uh, ownership is held by the students as well as the, as well as the uh, teachers who are also, you know, going to be there every year. So you don't lose ownership of the files. And then, these these teachers, they left, and they forgot to share the files with anybody. So then the next year, the next year's president comes in, all three of us have graduated, and she has nothing. What are you going to do, right? And this is just one of those situations where with COVID, if we had been in community council the next year, if we had stayed in the halls, uh, which you know, was possible at that point, I'm sure it was still in our minds, you could have done a lot more if you had the ability, but you didn't. Yeah. Or maybe you couldn't have done anything, and maybe it is just all a facade. I don't know. Well, that's really... That's something I guess the next few years would, would tell if I were to stay in there. Right. 